But we believe that every person has the right to make the decisions over their own future and over their community's future. Mm -hmm. And so the platform, the question becomes, what's the platform for citizens to come together and make decisions together in a way that at least has an aim towards equity? Welcome to the Building a New America podcast, Law, Politics, and the Constitution. My name is Jonathan Arias, and I'm the host. This is the podcast where we analyze contemporary issues and place them in the context of our Constitution. So our Constitution was drafted over 245 years ago in a much different era. So considering that, we often ask ourselves if it has kept up with the times, and if it hasn't, how can we update it? You know, amongst all the issues that we cover, one reoccurring theme is the idea of democracy. In 2019, I would say that it isn't in the greatest condition. But then again, this is not the first time we have been in this condition. And it's usually those that are passionate about the current affairs, the current conditions that keep it alive for the next generation. You know, on this podcast, we've been focusing mainly on domestic affairs. But today we are going abroad to bring in an international perspective. We have a very special guest joining us. Please welcome Sasha Fisher. Sasha is the co-founder and executive director of Spark Microgrants. She is one of 20 of the inaugural Obama Fellows, a Forbes 30 under 30 leader, and the recipient of the Muhammad Ali Award for Respect. Uh, interesting enough, she tried to get out of this podcast and hand it over to one of her board members, <laughs> Angela That's <Wakanda>. true. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And her advisor, Governor Howard Dean, who will be on the podcast in a couple of weeks on May 2nd. But we still managed to rope her into this. Thank you so much, Sasha. Um, one thing about Spark Microgrants, before you tell us a lot, a lot about it, but it's essentially, you know, she and her team at Spark have been developing a new sector called community-driven development, equipping communities with the resources and organ, uh, organizing power to drive local change. Sasha, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Jonathan, thanks for having me on. And thanks so much for curating this podcast. I feel like this is exactly what we need in this moment uh, in American history where we got to figure out what is the next phase for democracy? What does that look like for us? Absolutely. So I really appreciate it. No, thank you for joining us. And I think you will offer a rich perspective on democracy, especially with your experience abroad. And essentially what we want to do here is at the core of all this of this podcast is civic engagement. How can we improve yes. our democracy? So we, you know, we love to have you on here. So thanks. why don't we get started? Started. Um, Sasha, why don't you tell us, you know, what what led you to Spark Microgrants? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jonathan. You know, in 2010, I graduated from university, and I had a question in mind that. Um, that stemmed from an experience that I had a few years prior. I went to University of Vermont. There were some folks from South Sudan who were at the university as well, and a bunch of them had gotten together and said, we want to go home. We want to build schools for girls. Uh, South Sudan was emerging from over two decades of civil war at this Mm -hmm. point in time. Um, They were about to gain independence as a new nation, right? Mm -hmm. This is one of the most exciting times for a population. Like, we're about to gain um, this new right to be able to define our own future. and, uh, and so I, I kind of jumped on board and said, like, you know, tell me whatever I can do, being very naive and young. And um, and uh, I went with a bunch of them to South Sudan in 2008 to, mm-hmm. you know, so-called help build the first school. Right. This was still in college? <laughs> yeah. This okay. was, I think I was a 
after my sophomore year in college. Okay. And, you know, a little silly for me to think that I'm going to help build a school in South Sudan. <laughs> but, but that's how it <laughs> but, all starts. We, we're all ideologically driven and we're green and we want to change the world, right? Exactly. I understand that. Yeah, yeah th- that, that is very kind of you. Yeah. And, and the dream for this organization was let's build schools for girls because we all know that when girls are in school, everything else changes, right? The trajectory of your nation changes <laughs> and the trajectory of the economy changes, the, the society changes in very positive, important ways. Um, and so in, in a simplistic form, you could imagine that like build, building more schools for girls means that more girls will go to school and, and all those benefits will happen. Yeah. Um, but my friends showed me around when we got to um, – we were in Ye, South Sudan – and they essentially took me on a tour of other aid projects to get a sense of, you know, how were other schools running? How were other water projects running? And at this point in time, you know, I'm, I think everything's important. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. water is important. Education's important. Healthcare's mm-hmm. important. And lots of NGOs focus on one thing, right? They focus right. on water or healthcare or education. Okay. And I was like, it's all important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so they took me on a tour of an incredible tour of projects and, it's very sadly saw a lot of failed aid projects. And I think mm-hmm. this is what a lot of folks see when, when they go around areas that res- are the recipients of aid dollars from abroad, empty school buildings, mm-hmm. broken water taps, children sitting on the sides of the roads right. who want to be in school, mm-hmm. uh, but that school is not actually serving them. Right. And and it's a little bit confusing at first because you're like, there's this demand for education, but here are these empty school buildings. And the lesson was that families on the ground kept saying, you know, because I'm like, what? why is that happening? Right. Yeah, of course, you want to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> and mothers and fathers are saying, well, that school was built by outsiders. It's their school. They uh-huh. should come back and run it. It's not our school. When you say outsiders, well, people abroad from the United States or just not from the country? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So a That's lot right. of aid organizations that were coming in, you know, UN agencies or or big um, multilateral organizations uh, coming in to build schools and then kind of leaving to let the schools be managed uh, without really supporting anybody to manage those schools. And so part of the frustration walking away from South Sudan was, um, you know, here's an area there, you know, there's all these projects that are a lot of money is being poured in. They're not sustaining, which is terrible. Uh, but more importantly, like the way that the aid money is coming in is it's imposing solutions on the families that they're supposedly trying to uplift, but actually uh-huh. sidelining them in the process by saying you don't have a voice in how this school is built. You don't have a voice in how this water tap is built. Mm-hmm. And that is so contrary to mm-hmm. what was the most beautiful part about South Sudan was they were just gaining their nationhood. Yes, exactly. And the point of independence is you can control your own future. So the fact uh-huh. that folks were sitting on the sidelines and not actually mm-hmm. in those seats controlling what was happening in South Sudan was quite devastating to witness. What are some of those restrictions that these organizations were placing on the communities? Yeah, you know, I think there's a sense in now that I've been working in this field for the last decade or so, which is to make me feel a little bit old these days. <laughs> no, you're still young. You're still young. We still have a long way to go. <laughs> um, you know, I see a lot of the dynamics play out that allow for this type of aid model to work. And mm-hmm. and I'll give some context here to sure. foreign aid. So there's, um, you know, the sense that like money is useful in areas that don't have a lot of capital, mm-hmm. which I think there's a, that's really important. Like folks who don't have capital in their areas, like mm-hmm. deserve to have capital in those areas. And, and there's probably been somebody who's extracted resources, but not reinvested them. Interesting. Um, but when organizations historically have used a model that's more prescriptive, right? And you could see this in governance as well. I think about it a lot in terms of the American um, political system. What is being prescribed to you, right? So a, an, an NGO might come in and prescribe, say you don't have a, 
education system here. I'm, I'm going to prescribe building a school and then they build a school and then they leave and they say, now you should thank me for this school. Interesting. It's a terrible model. The school building's not going to be used. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to have ownership. And even worse mm-hmm. is you're going to decrease the sense of agency in that area because right. it teaches people, oh, somebody from the outside is going to come in with a lot of money and and create change. Horrible, horrible right. approach. Which, which is somewhat contrary to a nation that has just gained their independence because that's essentially what you fight for in independence to make yes. sure that you, you are exercising like these democratic principles where we should be able to participate in how we conduct our daily affairs. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That is exactly. That, that is the, the irony and the tragedy of how this gets set up. The second model, which is becoming popular right now, is part of what you were just talking about. It, are citizens able to participate in the planning for their school, in the planning for their water tap, in the planning of what's happening in their area? Mm-hmm. And that's a model called participatory planning, mm-hmm. which is really important and allows citizens to have a voice. At Spark, we fight for a next version, for a future where it's not just about citizen voice and participation, but where citizens actually control the decision-making over what's happening in their own community. Mm-hmm. So the the piece that we push for is the capital that's coming in, mm-hmm. fine, probably useful that there's capital, let citizens get together women and men, young and old, of any background within their own village, right. and let citizens make their own decisions about what to do with that capital. Yeah. Um, and at Spark, we support every village that we work with with an $8,000 seed grant, and people decide for themselves what to do with that money. Where does the $8,000 come from? Is that a, how did you come around to that number? Yeah, so it's, it's mostly from private philanthropy. Okay. So we'd raise money, and then we basically send that money to villages directly. Oh, no, I, I guess I meant to say, why is it $8,000? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Okay. There are no things, sorry. No, <laughs> Let's not get into I your question. <laughs> I should have been clear. Uh-huh. We initially piloted it with a two to $10,000 grant size. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for areas that haven't managed a lot of ca- capital at that quantity right. before, it was a little, it wasn't, it was a little hard to do like more than 10K um, for the first grant and anything below you know, 5K is, is like just not enough money to like impact 120 mm-hmm. families with. And so the 8K range, you were, people were able to launch a project, you know, start a school building, um, start building an electricity line, start an animal project, buy a plot of land for a group farm, really be able to make a step of progress. Mm-hmm. That's their first step. This is not okay. this does not solve anything, right? It's just right. a first step to getting folks organized to be able to make decision over that capital, mm-hmm. so they can then also go capture more capital Absolutely. afterwards. Where does this mentality come from of removing the community from the decision making process, which you know Spark is completely removing away from? But where, where does that mentality come from? Ooh, that it is very colonial. Um, Interesting and uh-huh. and dangerous. You know, it's mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, power and inequity in the way that our, any governing infrastructure works and there's that is exacerbated in the aid industry. Um, uh, you see a lot of conversations happening around how do you democratize philanthropy? Well, most of philanthropy is held by people who have made who have a lot of private wealth, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody who's made money from a business that they've run. And that business might be extractive from areas where they have no accountability to give back to those areas. Right. Right. And then they think, this is my money. I should have the decision-making power for how it's being spent versus this is capital that exists in our world mm-hmm. um, that you know maybe belongs to all yeah. of us, but right now I'm I'm holding yeah. it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, uh, and so then people have big egos over how and who gets to make the decision. And we all like our own ideas best. So we like to <laughs> hold on to our own ideas. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's hard for folks to let go of that decision-making power mm-hmm. and let somebody else make that decision. And has that been a huge barrier to, spark, a, as, he, to for you to convince 
wow, yeah. <laughs> so much harder than I would have imagined. Okay. Because mm-hmm. all of the, in there's this, you know, boom of be data driven. Yes. And all of the research shows that if you want your philanthropy to be effective, mm-hmm. citizens need to have control over it. Right. When you increase citizen participation, project impact and sustainability mm-hmm. goes up. It doesn't matter what region you're working in. doesn't matter what sector you're working in. There's a clear correlation between citizen participation yeah. and control over the philanthropy mm-hmm. and the benefit of it. Right. Um, and so from from most forms, you would think like, okay, so we would want to do that. Somebody who wants mm-hmm. to spend their money in a smart way would want to do that. But it's challenging because it challenges the power dynamic. Absolutely. What was the first project that you worked on that, I guess, signified to you that this would absolutely work? I know you mentioned essentially convincing people who are going to fund the organization and other uh, similar organizations. But what was the first project that that, that you found successful? Oh. <laughs> yes, thinking back, the fun days of yeah. of yeah, going around to some of the villages. So we in um, the first year that we were running Spark, which we didn't even really realize we were running something yet. But I had moved to Rwanda with about ten thousand dollars in uh, money that we had raised from folks in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I was going between Rwanda and Uganda. We wanted to test in two different places, so it wasn't mm-hmm. about one area, but it was really about you know what's a model that works for citizens anywhere, right. and. <clears throat> And a lot of the inspiration, by the way, came from models in southern India that we had seen that were just okay. incredible about bringing folks together and taking action. Mm-hmm. And in, in Uganda, the first community that we worked with, a, a brilliant man named Aaron Bukenya was the facilitator. He now runs an organization called BESO, uh, which is all about education in Uganda. Mm-hmm. And he facilitated his home village in Wantiti mm-hmm. um, to bring families together and plan for a project. And we were so small at this point in time that the money was only a $1,600 seed grant. Mm -hmm. So in my head, I was like, this is like no money. Like, what Uh are you going to do with it? And uh, the mothers predominantly came together and said, we want to build a school for our kids. We don't have one in our village. We're going to make this happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, you know, in my head, being this like naive American, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. how can you build a school with $1,600? It's going to be a horrible mess. It's not mm-hmm. going to be built, you know, to good standards or there, you know, maybe the technical knowledge isn't there. Right. All wrong. False lies in my head. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> well, this is because, you know, in, in the United States, you can't buy textbooks for $600. <laughs> You barely get to that, so I, I can understand why you had that mentality. Yeah, but you were wrong. So what? To- wrong. Dead wrong. <laughs> so the mothers uh, took, you know, opened a bank account, um, put the sixteen hundred dollars in it, and started building a school on their land. Um, about eighty kids started attending that school. Mm-hmm. Beautiful opening. Um, really allowed there to be more students able to attend school at this point in time. Today. Nine years later, that school is serving hundreds of students. It is like six times the size as it was in 2010. And folks are just really driving it to be not just the biggest school, but to have a really important education framework that teaches students in a way that allows them to like progress in the economy and mm-hmm. think critically and um, about innovation. It's really cool to see. Absolutely. I came across an article while researching uh, this conversation about certain, you know, other community driven organizations who, I guess, fall victim to not to attrition rates, where it's mm. initially they'll have members of the community involved, but then as the decision-making process goes along the way, they fall off. And one thing that I noticed that Spark Microgrants has been able to essentially separate yourself from that is by actually keeping members involved. So how do you, as particularly women, as we discussed, if you keep women yes. right, almost at the top, then <laughs> your, your economy, your, your infrastructure environment will, will be a lot better. So how have you been able to, one, keep, keep these attrition rates low and just keep members of the society involved? 
Yeah. Oh, that's good. So the at Spark's approach is really community organizing plus a seed grant. Right. So, um, and there's been programs that have tried to do seed grants, and if you don't do the community organizing piece, you get a lot of what's called elite capture. Right, the strong man is going to make the decision over how that capital is used. Mm-hmm. Right, and um, in a lot of the communities that we work in in Uganda, women have never attended a public forum before. They haven't been allowed to. There's there are places in the home, and so ha- opening up space is is important and it has to be thoughtful. <laughs> and I think about this a lot in the U.S. Like, how do we do this in the U.S. Yeah, at some point? Right. We've curated essentially and our teams in East Africa have designed a, a process tapping into pre-colonial organizing structures, a lot of like modern day organizing models mm-hmm. that essentially curates um, weekly village meetings for about six months okay. where women and men, young and old, are invited to attend. On average, 70 people show up to each community meeting. It's about mm-hmm. over half of the families represented. And, and people say, together and talk about what's happening in their village. What are their goals for their village in the future? Mm -hmm. What is their action plan to making progress against those goals? And then how are we going to use the our own funding and the the grant funding and government mm-hmm. resources to actually make those dreams possible to build right. our school and after we build this school to start a cow project so that we mm-hmm. can have milk and our kids have more nutrition and then start a business that will help us be able to pay for school fees and right, right. and grow the school absolutely yeah what you know Uganda um, didn't become a democracy until relatively recently maybe in the mm. I believe the 1960s or so but how do you feel that has affected like your work with Spark do you feel that people are I guess trusting other government do they feel that it's actually a democracy I mean how, how has you know uh, a country who's recently turned into a democracy how has that affected like you know on the ground community yeah. development. Yeah. I'll, so the, in the countries we work in, we're, we're in Rwanda, Uganda, and Burundi, mm-hmm. um, very different models of, of governance. In okay. Rwanda, there's a really strong government mm-hmm. and people trust the government to provide certain services and they won't even touch those. Okay. They'll say, we're going to go work on businesses because the government's promising the schools and the health centers. In Uganda, there's a lot less faith over some of those things happening and there's a lot more kind mm-hmm. of... Um, like raw kind of innovation happening. Right. Um, what I will say, what's really beautiful in mm-hmm. East Africa and many parts of the continent is that the institutions of the nation state are so young I see. that there's the belief and the desire to think of what is the best possible way to, to do government. Gotcha. And in the U.S., when we have conversations about democracy, mm-hmm. it's always embedded in what we've already done. And what we've already done in the U.S. is so constrained to how our system was designed, which was by predominantly a group of white men. Mm -hmm. And so the whole system is designed to that. Right. Right. Um, So we understand why it's exclusionary. Mm -hmm. And in in a lot of parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, I think there's like there's just the nation state is so much younger that the ability to dream and think anew of new forms of democracy in the future that might actually tell the rest of the world how to do democracy right. are able to emerge and prosper in incredible ways mm-hmm. and ways that are much more rooted in a sense of community at the local level. Yeah. Uh, whereas the Western world, we've become like very hyper individualistic. We have. Absolutely. And this is why, I, you know, one reason why I started this project is to go back to the, the basics. You know, our, our constitution, our country was na- uh, formed in, you know, the 1776, over 245 years ago. So because so much has happened since, we almost get away from the principles. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 
the principles, if you ask me, didn't start off on the best on the best grounds. But we won't go into that too much. <laughs> but essentially, when you go back to the you know the core principles from 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 how the nation started, mm-hmm. you go forward, and then you understand like where we can go. That's interesting because I recently uh, came across a poll that suggested that now uh, the public has very low trust in the federal government. Mm-hmm. Like there's like very little trust in yeah. the American government. But if you look a lot deeper, even though there's l- no, uh, less trust in the federal government, there's more trust in the state government, mm-hmm. and there's even the most trust in the local governments. And the reason why I believe is because on the local level, I'll probably run into my elected official on the street. Mm-hmm. I can go to mm-hmm. the community meetings and understand what's going on. So th- I see the parallel between a young nation, such as the countries that you're working in, and having some sort of optimism that we can essentially paint a, a, a good future for us. And yeah. I, it's interesting how on the local level, we tend to have more control over that. And especially if you yes. consider you know, federal anything on the federal level, it almost seems... Do, do you know what you can find out about as you turn on the news? It's very removed from us, mm-hmm. I believe, unless you're, you know, highly involved into it. But local politics is where we can essentially have more input into it. So, that, But I see parallels within that. Yeah. That, I really appreciate you bringing it up in that light. And it's making me think about, you know, when we talk about projects being more successful when citizens are more engaged. It's mm-hmm. the same thing with government, right? The, the yeah. democracy project of a government yeah. is more successful when citizens can engage. And when you're engaged, you have more ownership and you yeah. then therefore have more trust in the system. Exactly. right. Uh, yeah. But if you don't have space to engage, mm-hmm. how are you supposed to trust in that system? Exactly. If you don't yeah. have yeah, exactly. Opportunities to make decisions. You know, why would you mm-hmm. believe in them? Yeah, absolutely. So what, what's the, you know, what's the difference between local and community-driven organization? Because to me, they sound almost synonymous. I would say it's the same thing, but I know there's a difference there. Yeah. So what's the difference between that? Yeah. The, uh, the, there's a big push towards both being getting to more localization and to being more community-driven, which are both really important and both should happen. Yeah. <laughs> and local, though, is like you could have a local person running a project, mm-hmm. right? The group that I saw in southern India that inspired a lot of our work at Spark, um, there was a, a brilliant woman who was running an organization and she made it happen. And okay. she was from Bangalore and she organized women from Bangalore to make Mm-hmm. to make the organization possible, to fight for rights for women who are positive and whose husbands have left them because they probably infected them or whatever the right. issue area was. Um, so local is a local person running something. That's mm-hmm. great and very important and the best model. Right. The community-driven, though, acknowledges that you don't want to conflate one leader with the whole Okay. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'm from New York, but mm-hmm. I don't represent every New Yorker. Oh, okay, that's a good example, <laughs> right. Okay, right. Mm-hmm. And and so we feel like it's important to recognize the multitude of voices that are in a community, the ones that surface very easily, mm-hmm. sometimes like a strong man, right? Mm-hmm. And the ones that might be very important but aren't coming to the surface as easily, like young women, mm-hmm. um, might be sitting in the back of the room but have right. something really important to say. We mm-hmm. want to make sure that that space is curated so that her voice is also there, Absolutely, even yeah. if she's not the leader yet. Yeah, yeah. You just give her time <laughs> and she'll climb to the ranks. Yeah. yeah. Awesome, yeah. Um, in the last Uganda election, actually, about 100 women ran who had gone through the uh, the, the spark process. Oh, really? And a good portion of them won their their positions, which was pretty neat to see. Oh, wow! So yeah. that's another uh, benefit to it is that I guess you're preparing 
as civic leaders to the organization. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are, are you seeing that this type of leadership? I mean, obviously they came from your organization, but have you noticed? Does one child particularly stand out to you that you weren't surprised that they, they ran for office? Uh, yeah. In, in Eastern Uganda, actually, there was a community that um, really had to deal with a lot of the gender dynamics. Mm-hmm. Women were coming to community meetings. Their husbands were not very happy about it. Uh, they kind of had to advocate to their husbands, saying this project's going to benefit you. They were building a bridge, you know. And one woman said, you know, to her husband, "This bridge is going to help you sell your milk to the village, you know, to the village oh, next door." Uh, so he yeah. got on board, figured out how to get him to also like contribute labor to the project, which was okay. fantastic. Yeah. Um, and then eventually, she ran and won an, an a seat in the leadership team. Oh, wow. And yeah. that was, I mean, for the span of time, going mm-hmm. from never having attended a public forum before to being in leadership, right. yes, that is what we need. We need those voices up there. We need them included. Mm-hmm. We don't need just them, right? The men are important too still. Right, Everyone right. is important, though. We just want to make sure everybody has that shot to be in that leadership Absolutely. team. You know, when I consider what democracy is, I think most people will say it's the right to vote. Others will say the right to freely speak, to not be arbitrarily punished. That's a number of things. Mm-hmm. But I think it far extends beyond that. I think democracy also involves like a level of like, equalizing things yeah. in a sense where where it's not just having, you know, of course you want people voting, but it's also, it, it can't be just that. There has to be a lot of more elements to what democracy is. And I think while I'm, you know, throughout this whole project, I'm always retweaking my my interpretation or, you know, definition of what democracy is. So it's great to speak to you about how it's actually happening over mm. there. But I want to go back to um, the government of, of Rwanda. You mentioned yeah. how they had so much m- much more of a bigger or stronger government in mm-hmm. Rwanda. You know, uh, you know, tell us about your co- uh, collaboration with them, how they've been involved with Spark. Thanks for coming back to that. Yeah, yeah we have had i mean one of the things has been so impressive for me working in rwanda is that the government has seeks out ways to improve themselves okay. so they came you know, district officials came to our team at some point a few years ago and said whatever you're doing in your partner communities we want to be able to do it too mm-hmm. those villagers are going from the worst in sanitation to the best in sanitation mm-hmm. they're the ones who are coming to our government meetings and participating more than anybody else right. this is the stuff that we should be doing that's our jobs right mm-hmm. and so um, we've partnered with the government of rwanda to actually shape up a new um, version of local governance Mm -hmm. where that puts community first. Uh, If the project's successful, it means 12,000 young people entering political leadership Mm -hmm. immediately across 12,000 villages. It means every single one of those villages going through weekly village meetings where citizens have the right to make the decision over a pool of funds, the $8,000, and then a portion of taxpayer dollars that are going to come back to them year after year after year. Mm -hmm. And if this happens, it would probably be one of the most Progressive local governance policies mm-hmm. around the world, right. um, giving citizens huge control over what's happening in their own local community. Right. And when I think about that, and to your point, because you keep bringing up these really smart points about the U.S. and and our context here. Mm-hmm. I remember reading the Talkville's. This, yes, yeah, yes. Democracy in America. Exactly. Yeah. I've been reading it recently also. Oh, uh-huh. so good. And, you it know, is. in the 1830s, yeah. he points out that the important – the thing that differentiates a part of America that's more successful than another part is how strong the community spirit yes, is. how strong the community is. Absolutely, yeah. And mm-hmm. it's so intangible, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's one of these things that he even says nobody knows how to create it, but mm-hmm. it's the thing that will make it successful. Right, yeah. And – that is something we think about a lot and that mm-hmm. Rwanda is really good at. Rwanda is excellent at community spirit. Uh-huh. They have all of these um, homegrown initiatives, what they call mm-hmm. them, Ubudehe, which is funding for villages, right, mm-hmm. to do local village projects. They have Umuganda, which is a monthly community service program. Mm-hmm. They have all these programs that are rooted in 
historical Rwandan practices uh-huh. that they're bringing back. Yeah, I'm curious to know when I go back to the Tocqueville, um, how he read, you know, he wrote that book back in the early 1800s, I believe, mid 18, uh, you know, a long time ago. And then I also compare it to the relatively new governments out in, you know, in, in Africa. But I'm curious to know whether we've stepped too much away from that over here mm. because now it just feels Oftentimes, it feels like we're very polarized in this country, depending on where you go. If you, you know, you, if you're over here on the Northeast, you, it, there's like a certain vibe that we have over here. Mm-hmm. Maybe you go out West, it's completely different. Yeah. And I think there's so many different identities, so many different cultures that it almost makes it impossible to get things done here. Mm. And I think that's ultimately something that we want to do with this project is just bring more civic engagement. But how, you know, how do we do that? Because yeah. back then, maybe populations were a lot, were a lot, you know, smaller, more, more homogeneous. But then now, um, there's over 325 million people in this country with a, you know, that practice a range of religions, so many different identities, and I'm, you know, it's just difficult to, to I guess, go back to these principles and, and establish a more healthy democracy with mm-hmm. so many different practices, you know. But I also feel that I think in this country right now we're going through a lot of growing pains. It's almost like we, our democracy is really being strained, and I think that's uh, for a number of reasons. One, because of, of social media. You know, when you think about it, we now all all of us have like a printing press in our par- in our pocket now. If I have an opinion about something, all mm-hmm. I have to do is pull on my phone and speak on it. Now, if you multiply that by millions of people, there's tons of different opinions out there. So that's that's a factor that I know the founders of our, of our country just could not have possibly predicted. You know, I just, yeah. So That is one of the most beautiful parts. I mean, on, a, mm-hmm. on America's best days, right? We will mm-hmm. embrace all the different populations that are in our country. Mm-hmm. We will invite new ones in, mm-hmm. right? We are, on, on our best days, we are hope for somebody who is, you know, an LGBTQI in, in a country that's oppressive to LGBTI communities. And mm-hmm. that young man in Uganda has some hope that one day he can live free. Right. You know, there's, that is the bright side on mm-hmm. our best days. Yeah. Um, on our dark days, mm-hmm. we... We're more divisive, and right, yeah. we pull apart versus uniting around rights and yeah. and uh, equity. Um, yeah. And and I do wonder how you know in a lot of the areas under colonial rule, a lot of African regions there was the the um, divide and conquer was a classic strategy. Mm-hmm. So a colonial power would come in and then put a minority into power mm-hmm. and have a majority not be in power in that country, and so you'd have mm-hmm. a minority majority. Struggle, right? So that the colonial power then essentially could take control without anybody fighting them. Mm-hmm. You keep people separated, and then it almost removes the person who's accountable for all this away from it. Exactly. Yeah. And so some of the pieces, it hor- horrific, right? Mm-hmm. What that was a horrible past, um, and I fear that some of the division that we're seeing. relates in some ways to that. If you see division because people need to fight for a struggle to gain rights, absolutely, yes. Let that be emboldened. Let that come true. But if we're seeing divisions in our country that aren't instigated necessarily by us, but by somebody else that's Mm -hmm. trying to come in and divide us so that then they can take advantage, that's dangerous. And and I I fear about that in the U.S. right Mm -hmm. now because you are seeing really heightened tensions. You're seeing um, a lot of... uh, of of violence against certain population identities, not yeah, good. <laughs> not, not, not good at all. I mean, have you have you seen that in in over in Africa? Maybe the po- sometimes I feel that maybe we're not as polarized. Some days it feels like we are. Yeah. But have you seen that over there? I mean, you, you mentioned colonialism, but have you like have you encountered a particular instance of of just people not being able to come to terms? Ooh, yeah. I mean, if you if if you look at a lot of areas, right? Even in um and. 
in South Sudan. Like mm-hmm. there's different groups of there's the Nordinka, there's the Bordinka, there's mm-hmm. uh, you know different groups within, right. and um, part of the power is that you feel this strong identity, and mm-hmm. the other the part of the challenge is that because of the colonial history, those two groups might not think that they're you know, fighting for the same thing together, right. even if they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I see sometimes in the U.S. it feels like we might all be fighting for the same thing, mm-hmm. but we have been told that right. we're not. We've been told mm-hmm. that we're different and that, you know, one should have power over the other. Mm-hmm. And so we see that division, whether it's religious or racial right. or gender divisions, mm-hmm. um, that those we we tend to have similar dreams, right? We yeah. want mm-hmm. our kids to be in good schools. We want to have food on our tables. We want there to be peace and security. Yeah. We yeah. want, you know, to be yeah. able to, like, grow old in, in I, health. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I kind of want to switch uh, uh, topic, uh, topics a little bit and come back to this. But where, what's, what's your long-term plan with Spark Microgrants? I mean, where do you see it in the next five to ten years or even ten years I would say that's a much long term perspective yeah it's uh, we've gone to a pretty fun point recently where you know when we were starting it was like this concept that we were trying to prove that Mm -hmm. communities should be in control of their own future now with the global governance crisis you know people are freaking out about democracy and trying to figure out what do we do Mm -hmm. so that democracy will exist in a decade and a few decades from now Mm -hmm. so we're seeing a lot of demand from new areas right from um, I was just with some ministry officials from Somalia and Zimbabwe and uh, government officials from the U.S. and from uh, Japan, all interested in Mm -hmm. how do we strengthen local level democracy and community driven change. And so there's two big things that we want to do at Spark. One is we want to support and work with the government of Rwanda on this national scale program so that 12,000 villages can elect a youth to their leadership, Mm -hmm. get young people into office so that all 12,000 villages can launch a local project accelerating economic Mm -hmm. change in their areas and Mm -hmm. doubling household assets. Mm -hmm. Um, We want to make that happen. And the second thing we want to make happen is to build this sector of community-driven development Mm -hmm. so we can say goodbye to the prescriptive aid of the past. So we can say participation and participatory development is nice, but it's not as good as Mm community-driven. And making community-driven development more mainstream mm-hmm. instead of something that's sitting on the sidelines is right. like a little bit of a fringe thing to do. Mm-hmm. We want to see that being a central way of doing governance and yeah. development. Absolutely. And you have a, you certainly have a great plan for this. You know, I want to, I guess I'll go back on uh, community driven approaches. So if the, the concept is to allow the community to build, have you come across a project where you didn't agree with, or maybe you say it's not the best idea, but because I'm so driven, I guess I'm, I'm driven towards a community driven approach. Like, what has been a project where maybe you necessarily didn't agree was the best one, but you still maintained your, I guess, your ideology of, of giving people the decision-making progress, the uh, power? Yeah. Uh, you know, what I've learned is how much I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think a lot of our staff, you know, we've put in regulations in our team where we're not allowed to offer suggestions of project types because okay. it's just not our role, right? Mm-hmm. So from the beginning, we're not allowed to interject. So folks might have ideas that they like, like they might really like cows versus goats, but mm-hmm. they're not allowed to say it. I see. I will say that I personally had a, at some point in Rwanda, there were a lot of goat projects okay. and communities just kept doing goat projects. And I thought that's great, but yeah. you know, <laughs> uh-huh. I'm interested in what different types of projects people want to see. And, and uh-huh. I'm always curious about like, what are the positive de- deviant ideas, you know? Right. And what were the goat projects exactly? Is it what, what? It's basically a bunch of families getting together saying goats are really easy to rear. We can have meat from them, which is nutritious. We can okay. sell them. We can have the milk from them. Gotcha. And so buying you know, 
60 goats or so, raising mm-hmm. them together and then having that as an asset. Okay. Animals are one of the largest movable assets for families. And so it's it's like a form of wealth. Gotcha. Um, okay. And so with the goats, though, it's like we kept having goat projects. <laughs> and at some point I had to be like, okay, I have to look into like how are these more successful or less successful than other community projects? Mm-hmm. And what we saw was that communities that chose goat projects actually were much more likely to launch a secondary initiative. Okay. So of all the communities we've worked with, 94% continue to meet on a regular basis Mm -hmm. and 93% have launched a secondary project. I see. Okay. Many of those communities also launch a third and a fourth project. Okay. And if they started with goats, they're much more likely likely. to be on their fourth project already, essentially. So you had to understand why most villages, most communities wanted to start with goats, even though... They were all starting the same, you know, it was the same idea, but maybe you had to understand why. Which, again, I think that's the beauty of your project is, you know, essentially questioning what – allowing people to make their own decisions – um, questioning why, but then giving them the resources to essentially still establish it. Because that's something I would have I wouldn't have thought of that once you start a particular business, that it leads to others. And 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 for Americans, right? Like we're attracted to the shiny things. Yeah. Like we oh, want yes. the shiny new thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. goats are like really boring, but they're easy <laughs> to raise and I they're see. brilliant. It's like maybe we should also be more interested in what's boring and not shiny mm-hmm. um, and just and support that and yeah. and even in our own kind of thinking of our institution right yeah so. absolutely absolutely so what does the rest of your year look like I know you have tons you have tons of plans you just uh, you know you came over here to New York City but what's uh like what, what's the next six months looking like yeah hope, I, I feel very grateful for being able to um, be involved with the Rwanda program mm-hmm. um, and so we'll be uh, doing a bunch of policy work with the government of Rwanda to bring together uh, government the Ministry of Local Government, Ministry of Finance, um, mm-hmm. and designing the local governance model. Right. Um, and then in Uganda, we're also working with uh, communities. There's a, one of the largest emerging refugee crises uh, is in northern Uganda. Um, South Sudanese and folks from the DRC are coming in, um, over a million and a half now settled in northern Uganda. And so we're working with the communities within the refugee settlements mm-hmm. and host communities to make sure that both equally have opportunities to launch local projects that they care about and have that power over it. Awesome. And yeah. in Burundi, we're um, working with an incredible partner called FVS Ahmad. They are one of the strongest civil society organizations in the entire country, run by a brilliant woman named Spez. And uh, and we are working with FVS to roll out this model so that more villages in Burundi actually have the chance to get together mm-hmm. and drive change. And Burundi is, there is Tons of potential and opportunity in Burundi, but um, is one of the countries on our planet that ranks in the bottom five of almost everything, whether it's GDP per capita, maternal mortality. Mm-hmm. It's it's and it's been cut off from a lot of resources because the government has um, they have a challenging government right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm thrilled that we still get to work in these three beautiful parts of the world. Absolutely. So uh, former Governor Howard Dean is an advisor uh, to Spark Michael Grants. How is it working with him? Oh, Governor Dean is fantastic. You know, he he embodies what you want in a leader, which is his whole mantra is I want to get out of the way and I just want to support young people to do things. He does have that mentality, right? Yeah. yeah. And and his whole history is in, you know, he created the 50 state strategy. Strategy, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Which was all about grassroots power. Right. Get folks out in the grassroots and let them mm-hmm. take control of the campaign and of, you know, what happens in the in when you're campaigning for 
the presidency. Mm-hmm. And that same strategy is in some ways what we're working on, right? How do you mm-hmm. mobilize the grassroots but let it scale? Right. You don't exactly. want just one community to have the right fulfilled to make change. You want every community across our world to mm-hmm. have that right fulfilled. Right. And in the U.S., you know, I think he's he's built a lot of that here in the U.S. for grassroots movements. And we're interested in how we do that right. everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. You know, regarding grassroots movements, I think the reason why that's so effective and you do need to get out of the way is because when you start from a grassroots level, you're starting with people who have who are already solving problems. It's almost like people who run for office. Ideally, you, you know, as a representative, you're supposed to represent the people in your community and advocate for their best interests as, as much as possible. So it almost seems that some, pe- some people who come from grassroots movements are almost, I can't speak for everybody, of course, but it's almost like they're thrown into it because they see problems in their own communities mm-hmm. and they work towards them as opposed to waiting for some sort of figure who's going to come save everybody. And I think that's what we have to start looking for towards the next, the next elections because I think mm-hmm. ultimately when we elect presidents or senators or any, anybody to the federal government, we, I guess, uphold these people because they are politicians. They are supposed to have a certain type of character and morality. Um, but ultimately, I think we have to start from people who, who are taking problem-solving approaches, who are doing things from the ground up and moving from there. It's almost like a bottom-up approach, starting yes. from there as opposed to waiting for like a savior to come in and solve everybody's problems. Absolutely. We yeah. are all... You know, just humans. Yeah, <laughs> and I remember right. when um, we had the privilege to be part of the Obama Fellowship Program, and Michelle at some, you know, Miss Obama at some point said to us, like, you're, you know, it's special that you guys are in this program, but you're also not so special. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Saying, yeah, just, like, yeah. everybody, right, has a brilliant idea. Everybody mm-hmm. should have that right to, like, go after that brilliant idea that they have for their local community. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we open up space for that in the U.S., it could be transformative. But that has to be opened up comprehensively, not just for some neighborhoods. Definitely a lot more than that. How is it um, working with the Obama Fellowship? How's how's that experience? It's such a treat. You know, it's the whole network. It's all folks who are trying to work on grassroots initiatives, things Mm -hmm. that are um, from the bottom up community oriented, right? Yeah. Folks who really believe in community organizing. Mm-hmm. It's like if there's that, I hope that that is the new world order yeah, yeah. <laughs> when everybody from this Obama program, whether it's the Africa leaders or it's this, uh, the Obama scholars or the future European leaders and Asian leaders through their, their next set of programs. But if all of those folks are in political office in the mm-hmm. future and redefining the institutions of their governments. Yes, mm-hmm. I could believe in that world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it starts with us. It's you know when I, when I go back to my college days, I also was very idealistic about everything. I do. I still feel that I can change the world. Um, in a, but in my you own are. type, you know, but in my own type of way, like with them, the people around me, with them, especially with my family, my younger brothers, people who I can touch. That's the way that I feel that I can that I can improve things. Um, but I think we all need that mentality of just working on ourselves. And then once we work on ourselves as much as we can, mm. then go out there and try to improve like the, the small circle that we have around us. And I think that does start with us. I think we're at a moment right now where we have gotten to a certain age and we have certain experiences where we can start to like take on more burdensome projects, like more projects that like could have a lot more impact. And I think it's almost our turn now to step into these shoes that our parents or maybe people before us have started to do. And that's essentially what I want to do with this podcast is just um, bring voices like yours on here, um, foster democracy, make sure that we can improve our communities as much as possible. Yeah. And I love that. That's why I love that you guys are doing this podcast. Thank mm-hmm. you for investing the time Definitely, and creating yeah. a whole new venture here with this to to spread yeah. some thoughts. And hopefully, I, I look forward to listening to the, the yeah. future um, sessions as well. And I, and I love the way that you were talking about like 
you know, it's up to us. And it's it's what's incredible about our generation is that I think in the, that we can not just take it one action, right? Like we could do something within our own community, but we can also fight to change the systems mm-hmm. that were designed that are like the rules of how we engage, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the system in the U.S. was designed by a set of people that now limits the freedom of certain people to get out and vote, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that mm-hmm. is, there is an oppressive part of our system. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we have, if we seize the moment to redesign the system itself, it will mm-hmm. change the behaviors. Right now, we can go vote, we can protest, we can show up to our community board meetings, but it's pretty limited. Like, that's a limited amount of engagement that we have mm-hmm. for our right in our own government, in, mm-hmm. our, in our own democratic system. And so how do we reimagine what our democratic system looks like so that it's much easier for folks to engage and have more rights within our political system. Like, do we have the right over parts of our budget Mm -hmm. in our community meetings? Do we have a right to make decisions over what's happening in our neighborhood Mm -hmm. over developers having rights in our neighborhood? You know, do we have the right to push forward policies that we know are important for our neighbors but aren't being presented by politicians? Let's think about how to open those spaces. Like, that is really neat that we have yeah. that opportunity. I can't top that. <laughs> I can't top that. So, Sasha, you are certainly uh, an accomplished person. Um, and what I also want to do here is give advice to the younger uh, younger generation. You know, what what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? If you can go back and speak mm-hmm. to Sasha when, when you were 20 years old, you know, still in college. But what, what advice would you give yourself with all the experience that, you, that you've gained over the years? Man, I just got lucky, so I feel very fortunate. Um what would I go back and say? You know, when I was starting, I was really young and naive. I, w- I was 21 years old and um, had a lot of ideals about the world. And a lot of older um, advisors gave me a lot of smart advice on how to establish Spark as an organization that I'm really grateful for. I also got a ton of advice from every person who wanted to tell me how to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the struggles that I had was navigating, you know, what are these inherent you know, idealistic values that I have and how do we allow those to to exist in the organization, right? Like let communities really make the decisions over the grant money. A lot of people would tell us, oh, well, you could go after healthcare money or you could go after education money and then play that game, right? Because that's right. how the system's set up is to fund education work or healthcare work mm-hmm. and then capture that money and then support communities to do healthcare work or education. It totally missed the mark of what we were trying to do, yeah. which was letting community members make the decisions over that capital. But we got that advice a lot. We just mm-hmm. got it over and over and over again. And um, I think just reaffirming to myself that to have the confidence to to put our foot down and say, no, this is what we believe. Right. And not only is it what we believe, but this is what's right for the world, right? This is like every citizen should have that decision making, right? Yeah. Um, and if you're saying it's inconvenient to do that or that's not how the system is established, so mm-hmm. you should conform um, is not a very good arg- or compelling argument. Right. So I would just Im- hopefully embolden myself to, yeah. to yeah. <laughs> listen to advice and how to form an institution or an organization, but to really to stick true and, and double down on what your values are and, le- and let them guide you and be okay with that. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Um, Sasha, where can people find you on, on Twitter? And uh, tell us where we can, if someone's interested in knowing about your organization, where can they go? Yeah. Thanks folks. Get involved. We are at sparkmicrograms.org. Mm-hmm. You can reach out to myself at, at spark, sorry, at Sasha D Fisher on Twitter. Um, at for spark, it's at spark mg and we love talking about this stuff like give us ideas come to us with ways that you envision different futures for the way that uh, nations can be transforming and communities can gain more power Uh, we love it 
Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, before we uh, log off, Sasha, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast. You know, we met through a, a mutual friend, which is our executive producer, Andre Garrett. And I'm yes. forever grateful for Andre for uh, bringing us together and for us to share this type of work. I think this is what it's all about. So thank you very much. Jonathan, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Uh, you, I know that you've been teaching law and mm-hmm. you're doing this podcast and I am always learning from you. So thank you so much. It's a I've, treat. Thank you. Thank you. Before we log off, I do want to give some of the credits because it's very important. Like, there's no way that I could do this project alone. I want to shout out. Well, before I get to the, the credits, I want to, I guess, uh, tee up what's going to happen in, in the next couple of weeks for building a new America podcast. Next week, April 25th, I'll be viewing Vincent Sutherland. He is the executive director excuse me, executive director at the NYU School of Law, their Race, Inequality, and Law Center. We'll be speaking about his work out there. And then the following week on May 2nd, I'll be sitting down with uh, former Governor Howard Dean. And that will be live at Civic Hall. If you would like to come to this conversation, um, and Sasha, you're actually joining us there also. Yeah, I'll see yeah, you guys there. You well, I'm sorry. There's been a lot of... Uh, uh, Rearranging with our guest, and I forgot about that part. So we'll be speaking to Sasha on May 2nd, as well as former Governor Howard Dean. That'll be live at Civic Hall. It begins at 6.30. I think it'll be an exceptional conversation. We'll be discussing the 2020 election, uh, politics, law, the Constitution, all these things that we'll be doing live. Ultimately, not most, all of us don't get the opportunity to speak to people like this, so I would like for... You know, to get this information out there to everyone else, you can go over to the Eventbrite page. Just uh, type in Building a New America and the tickets will be available. Regarding this podcast, make sure you subscribe. Go over to iTunes, to Stitcher, to Google, Building a New America. Make sure you put on the notification to know when we release new episodes. And then finally, I do want to shout out the people who are uh, so gracious enough to work on this project along with me. First, we have the executive director, Andre Garrett. He's the, I would say, the mastermind who's putting all this stuff together. Then we have Marcus Sandifer, who's also the executive director who has been extremely uh who's been just contributing so much to this project. We have our advisor, Hazel Weiser. She's the one who essentially helps me prepare uh, prepare for all these interviews and uh, gives me as much feedback as possible. We have our showrunner, Jorge Navia, who's also our associate uh, producer. Shout out to Jorge. There he goes. And then we have our social media manager. We have Zani Garrett. She's the one that handles all our social media, our marketing, and our uh, media inquiries. And then finally, you have me, uh, the host, John Denarius. If you would like to know more about the project, just head on over to uh, Asset Building a New America. And for right now, we are shutting off. And thank you for listening.